Technology careers are not as accessible to certain demographics, such as women or minorities. Sarah Allen is working to change that through education and outreach. Sarah created RailsBridge and Bridge Foundry, a pair of organizations working to make technology more accessible to people who are underrepresented in technology. RailsBridge workshops are a fun and free way to get started with Ruby, Rails, or other technologies. RailsBridge was so successful that Sarah created Bridge Foundry, which has an even wider variety of free workshops, from Clojure to Go to Mobile. This is an inspirational episode of Software Engineering Daily, and it's a great opportunity for anyone who is looking to learn how to build a community. Sarah Allen is the founder of RailsBridge and the leader of Bridge Foundry. These are two organizations working to make technology more accessible to people who are underrepresented in technology. And more generally, they are part of a learn-to-code movement that we're trying to cover on Software Engineering Daily. Sarah was on a previous episode talking about 18F. Um, Sarah, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's great to be here and talk about coding. Yes, absolutely. So before we talk about RailsBridge and Bridge Foundry, let's talk more broadly about diversity. Why is it important to make tech more diverse? That is a great question. Um, there's a lot of research that supports that in general, diverse teams have better outcomes. They're more creative. You have more ideas you, I also believe that of necessity, when you have a diverse team, you have to create a forum for discussion that allows for different opinions and different perspectives. And so there's been a lot of research that shows that in um, lots of different dimensions of diversity. The other thing about technology these days is software um, and hardware is becoming embedded in our world fundamentally different ways than it was 20, 30, 50 years ago. And if we don't have all of the people represented in the creation activities, I don't believe we're going to end up with the solutions that we need for our society. Mm, so more opportunities, the power set of potential uh, things that we can explore is so giant. We need uh, all the help we can get and all the different perspectives to explore these different avenues of technological advance. Exactly. And I think the other point is very simply, we have a talent crunch. And we're not looking at all the prospective talent. Mm. You know, in terms of the talent crunch, I, I find this interesting. I feel like we are in a what may be a permanent transition from this economy of mostly kind of uh, the service worker economy and the in, uh, the industrial like assembly line, manual labor, commodity worker economy to the knowledge worker economy. Uh, and I think it's it's almost impossible to understate how crucial this transition is. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that is analogous to the Industrial Re Revolution, where we changed how our society functions. We've changed the definition of work. We changed a lot of how um, individuals um, contributed to society um, with the Industrial Re Revolution. And I think that now um, it's a challenge for society, but I also think it's an opportunity. Um, it means that we have to, it's a, it's a 
economic necessity to have a more educated populace. Mm. So given that it is economic necessity, I mean, this kind of the idea of the Industrial Revolution uh, was that, you know, it was an economic necessity that we taught uh, people some degree of compliance, some degree of ability to work together, not, uh, and I don't say this in a critical fashion, it was just, we had a lot of assembly line type jobs. So that got baked into the education system, because that is what uh, people got hired for it was the ability to fulfill these types of jobs, but that job desirability landscape has changed. So, given that change, what are the first principles of education and particularly like coding technology education that we need to start thinking about and baking into our educational processes? One of the things that I find that I think is um, not baked into a lot of our educational processes and most people don't think about in terms of coding is that we really need good thinkers. We need good problem solvers. We need people who have incredibly good communication skills. And this is not something that people normally think of when they think of coders. They think of people who, you know, sit alone in their room and type a lot and come up with these amazing things that the lone genius exactly and while there's still opportunity for individuals who like to work that way to contribute the majority of software development is team sport and um the other thing is that we see a lot of software that fails because people don't understand the problem they're solving and the more that we compartmentalize the, you know, the people who talk to people versus the coders, the more that we are ineffective at having the coders really understand the problem that they're solving. And then they don't necessarily come up with a solution that will work in the market and will work for the people. And so these new, um, I mean, not really new, but they're newly dominant or at least emerging. I don't know if it's a majority of the industry, but it's certainly a growing part of the industry that does human-centered design and user research is a part of the software development practice, those skills need to be acquired by coders. Like mm. The whole team needs to participate. And of course, you need somebody who's going to structure the research plan and do the outreach to the individual customers or prospective customers who maybe are not going to be spending their time coding and maybe they don't even know how to code. But then the coders need to be involved in that process, or I don't think we have the right outcomes. Right. Okay. So we've highlighted kind of the the educational transformation that we're undergoing. We've highlighted the need for diversity. And RailsBridge and Bridge Foundry, these two organizations that you're involved in, are both instrumental in trying to uh, inspire the sort of change that we need uh, to remedy these these problems or these changes. So what is RailsBridge? So RailsBridge was started in 2009 as... Um, Really, it was an organization that um, that grew out of the Rails community and out of a desire to create the community that we wanted to be in. You know, that there were a number of people who felt that some of the louder voices in um, the Ruby and Rails community were not representative of um, what the kind of environment that we wanted to work in. We wanted to create an environment where New coders, whether they were Java programmers or Windows programmers or um, people who'd never written a line of code before would feel welcome. And um, and that our um, software 
and the, our events would be places that um, would welcome all sorts of different kinds of people. Mm. And so the uh, this this selection bias in the Ruby community uh, led to sort of uh, an, an egregious uh, disproportion of men versus women. Uh, although I'm sure there are all kinds of other axes that um, define underrepresentation, we could talk about uh, minority statuses, or so on. So in 2009, you know, you kind of had this this realization. Um, what was the gender distribution like back then, and what and perhaps the ethnic distributions that were alarming to you, and how has this changed in the last six or seven years? So in 2009, um, Ruby was very similar to um, open source in general. There had been two um, studies a couple of years before that that determined that in open source, um, all contribution, not just coding, but community management or documentation, had 2 to 3% women, which is much, much less then, you know, the, the numbers at the time were saying that as industry as a whole, software development had 25 to 30% of women, depending on how you count. And and as I understand, our population is 50% women. It's actually more than 50%, I think. But Ah, okay. <laughs> um, but then we were also seeing, I don't know statistics on it, but we were also seeing anecdotally that um, in the San Francisco Ruby community where we started, it was... Um, predominantly white, um, not even a lot of Asians. And I think that has a lot to do with the San Francisco tech scene at that time was um, predominantly white. Um, And, you know, whereas I think in the South Bay, you saw more of an Asian population and, um, and very young that um, there was like, when I was starting in the industry in like the nineties, it was the, the prevailing wisdom was that, you know, adults started companies like you had to have 10 to 20 years of experience before you could actually start a company and then um most people today don't realize that this celebration of young founders and this feeling like well we have to found you know fund the 20 something things was really new in the 2000s right or maybe late 90s that before that like if you wanted to found a company straight out of college like you had to find you know a a, quote grown-up to like co-found with you or you wouldn't be taken seriously. So, um, so we were in this kind of startup situation where um, a lot of very young people with a bias that, wow, you know, if you're 30 something or God forbid 40 or 50 something, not only are you not likely to know this new technology, but you probably can't learn it. Right. Which is ageism. Ageism. (laughs) Indeed. This feeling that if you've been around for a while, that's actually going to inhibit you from learning. Where, which is a- see, this is one of the most insane things that I've I, I've really kind of wanted to attack, or I shouldn't say attack, but at least disentangle uh, on software engineering daily. This idea that we have this neuroplasticity that just breaks down over time, and we become frozen in the set of skills. We become completely unable to reinvent ourselves. I think this is one of the craziest societal myths that we have uh, pervading our world. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And what it's missing is that, you know, this wisdom that people who have 10 or 20 or 30 years of experience really bring to the table, that they understand, you know, like 
you know, independent of like the human patterns that they know how to like show up and work and facilitate conversations and manage people and all of that, but that technically they understand patterns, that there are things that I have been doing in software, right, since, you know, I started in the 80s and 90s that I'm still doing today, that they are the, they're not the language and the syntax, they're the patterns, and that I draw from that experience to make really good software. And I know people who were programming in the 60s or 70s that I really value when I have the opportunity to work with them because they really understand the roots of our industry. They understand protocols, like all the new, all the quote, new graphic stuff we're doing on iPhones, like I was doing in college. And, um, and I think that if we could grow a greater appreciation of what people with different experiences bring to the table, it's going to make us much more powerful as software development teams. Right. Okay. So let's get back to talking about the women issue specifically. They can almost use this as the base case for any sort of, uh, you know, diversity problem because the women issue is so egregiously disembalanced. So, why are women so underrepresented in tech? Is there this assumption that maybe these women aren't in tech because they're not interested? Like, what? where is this coming from? That is a great question. I mean, I think the answer is all the things, right? <laughs> um, there is a bias in our society at all levels, right? We are seeing this in every single industry um, that m- m- most... Every single industry is tackling this in some way that has been historically male dominated. And, you know, how do we create opportunities for everyone? Um, So there's a a societal problem with, you know, leadership, with expertise that somehow, you know, women are only qualified to do things that are somehow biologically linked. Um, And, um, you know, and then there's this sort of crazy notion that um, that women are somehow less. Um, capable in math and science, which has, you know, been proven to be untrue. Um, and um, there's there's actually, um, if you ever want to think about things in a different way, there's a, a fabulous um, essay by Gloria Steinem um, called uh, If Men Could Menstruate, which is like, <laughs> well, then, of course, they would be better astronomers because they're in touch with the cycles of the heavens. And, uh, yes, you know, they would brag about how much and how long and, you know, like all about the ways that if they, you know, if men could have this capability, then it would make them more expert in some way. I love it. I love it. That's a that's a great commentary. Um, but back to your question. So I think we have these societal problems, right, that um, cause women to have like, you know, um, be shut out in some way from all sorts of industries. And then we have sort of this tech specific challenge and we have all of the kids stuff where like they've done studies where when there's one computer in the house sits in the boys room and that's a thing. Right. Um, but I think that- that's absolutely true. I had never thought about that one. You know, my, I don't think my sister had a computer growing up then then like I'm, you know, from a upper middle class, Family, there's no reason why my sister should not have been at least exposed to the same degree that my brothers were given opportunity. And I don't think I don't. I guess I don't. I shouldn't comment on that because I don't know that. But now that's just one of these one of these strange things. You know, you get pointed out to you that like you know these subtle societal signals, and the closer you look, it's always there's more and more and more and more of these. 
Right. And what's really interesting, I think, about the software industry is it completely defies logic because the software industry um, was created by women. So in the 40s, largely because of the war, the men were... Um, there wasn't that many men uh, available to do the work in, you know, during the war that supported these new machines. But then there was the feeling that the difficult work was creating the machines and that creating the programming was something that you could give to, you know, kind of secretaries. Um, of course, they hired women math majors um, who were at the top of their game to do the software programming. Um, but the you know all of the software development um, during the war was really done by these women math majors, um, and then who were called computers. Yeah, so they had been doing it, doing stuff with slide rules. So they were there. They, there's a fabulous book called "When Computers Were Human," um, and they used to refer to it like in the 30s and 20s as pink color work. Hmm. Because um, because you know if if you were a woman mathematician, there was there was actually little um, opportunity for you. Um, except in these these roles, which were very intellectually demanding, but not considered to be, um, it was considered to be kind of more support work. And um, so anyhow, um, our industry was really created by women. And, but when it was recognized as an industry, it became a male dominated industry. Um, but all throughout the 60s and 70s, you know, you know, Barbara Liskoff and the, I mean, she might've been even later, um, the Liskoff Distributed principle. Systems Pioneer. Exactly. And, you know, incredible women, like, you know, inventing algorithms, you know, the subroutine was invented by a woman. You know, this history is not well understood, right? Well known, well documented. And, and, only, and recently people keep unearthing like, oh, yeah, this thing, it was invented by a woman. She just, you know, it didn't get into the common thinking. Um, and the common narrative about programming. So there's, there's this sort of myth um, about what, what our history is, right, mm. that isn't associated with reality. Mm. And then the other thing that is a huge dynamic today is that the women who do become, you know, get computer science degrees or enter the field are then leaving um, maybe faster than they're arriving, which I don't think is technically possible, except that um, there were more before, right? So I think that since, you know, in the 80s, we got to, I think, almost 40% women uh, graduating with computer science degrees. Mm. And then, of course, only, um, I think, 40% of people in our industry have computer science degrees. So you have people coming in from all different fields. So, so these are women who enter the workforce maybe as a software engineer, uh, while they're in the software engineering workforce, they receive so many repeated microaggressions or miniature signals that they do not belong, that they are uh, subjugates of the their male counterparts, and they just get fed up and leave. Yep. And some of these women, are, they go do other things, and they're, they're super accomplished, right? They just stop being software engineers. So statistically, it, women who get computer science degrees two thirds of them leave before they've been in the industry for three years. Mm. And then of the rest of the population, which are some have CS degrees and some don't um, by the 10 year mark, half will have left. Mm. So we have hundreds of thousands of women with computer science degrees who are just not working as software developers. We have this huge untapped potential 
And my theory is, you know, they talk about supply and demand. They think that we have a supply problem in, um, you know, underrepresented minorities and women. I think we have a demand problem where we don't have, uh, um, rather, we have a different supply problem where we don't have enough good jobs where anybody would want to work. Yes. So, I mean, we could talk about the the problem and uh, and the surrounding problems for a long time. Uh, let's talk about the solutions. Um, so, you work on you've worked on RailsBridge. You work on Bridge Foundry. Um, I want to go back to the first workshop that you did with RailsBridge. So, you know, you noticed this crazy gender distribution. You said, I want to do something about this. You announced a workshop to do what? So um, I noticed that I had been meaning to learn Rails for like three years. Like I always have like six or seven things I want to learn. And then I was like, okay, I bet there are other women like me. If we just threw a workshop where we taught Rails and Ruby, um, then um, then some of those women might want to stay in the community or find Ruby jobs. And, and, and I'll, I'll just interject. Rails is like the the most pleasurable uh, experience I've had onboarding with any type of framework. I don't know if you share that experience across your uh, computing career that is longer than mine, but for me, it was a really, really just enjoyable experience end-to-end from Rails new, whatever, to having uh, something that was a working app that I could share with people. So I think if your goal is to learn Rails, it is a great experience. If your role is to be productive quickly in doing something complex and you have experience as a software developer, it is nutty. Like I had, I knew MVC, I watched MVC happen, right? Um, I go into Rails and, and also like Rails names patterns as if its implementation is the pattern, right? It's a little funny and it doesn't always get it the way that you would expect. Like, the MVC pattern in Rails, like you've got these, like it took me the longest time to unwind the fact that, you know, you're in a controller and you make a instance variable that is available in your view, which is another like class. So wait, is it still object-oriented programming? I thought this was Ruby. What's okay, going well, on? So, so anyway, okay, the, there's deliberations around the practicality right. or whatever. We should talk about RailsBridge, I guess. So, but all I want to say is that oh, sure. it's deceptively easy and it's very quick that you get to a cliff where getting good enough to do something complex is then um, completely uh, hard to grapple with right mm. it's but but perfect for new developers because then they're hooked at that point yes one would hope so what we did um intentionally was to build excitement about from both non-programmers and programmers to use this um this framework what we did unintentionally is we created um you know what some people would refer to as a community of practice so we created a network of people who were you know, women and men who were all connected to each other, all learning at the same time and sharing skills, which means that when you hit this cliff, you have people to talk to, mm. which typically as a woman, it's a little awkward to be the only woman in the virtual room when you have questions, right? And mm. you, all your quote friends 
might be somebody who wants to date you and that's kind of weird or like, you know, like you go to these meetups and somebody thinks you're in, you know, recruiting like it, it can uh, get in the way of the actual learning. But by cre- So you create, you accidentally created a network effect uh, within a, um, a mostly female uh, Ruby on rails introductory environment, which was perfect because the, the canonical thing that was happening in, in this type of workshop is, uh, you know, the, the new developer starts learning. Uh, if she's a woman, she gets to this cliff where it gets really complex and difficult. The only people she can ask are um, males, which is not inherently a problem, but it's m- much better for her to be in an environment where she's surrounded by plenty of females that she can talk to. Yeah, and I think that, like, dudes run into that cliff too, um, but they have more resources. Yep. So you had this first workshop, you, uh, you started to, I guess, so what, what, what was the sequence of events that unfolded where you started to realize this type of network effect uh, was happening? So we had, um, so we had the first workshop, which originally we had 40 spots. And then because we had a wait list, we expanded to 80. We had 63 people show up, eight teachers, half women, half men teachers, lots of TAs, childcare. It was really awesome. And um, that That sounds magical. It was so fun. And people were really excited about the whole phenomenon. Like the whole community came out and supported us. Um, And then afterwards, people um, were like, how do we help? And so the next workshop we had at Pivotal Labs, they um, generously hosted us in the city. And what surprised me is we had a lot of people who had been to the first workshop also come to the second workshop. And mm. this became a pattern, which I didn't expect because I our plan... Compound interest. <laughs> well, the, it was the same curriculum, right? So you wouldn't expect that um, I know. somebody would do that. But what it turns out that since we had different levels and you could do entry point at different levels and they were small groups, so that each teacher would kind of take it in whatever direction their students would want to learn so it was a really great environment for people would rebuild the same app over and over again and get a little deeper, like be able to ask those questions like, OK, what's exactly going like when I do, you know, Rails generate model or scaffold? Like, what am I what is what's all this code? What you know, what is the You know, so you could dive into different parts of the app and then over time become more expert. Mm. And then we would encourage the TAs to then teach. Like so people would go from student to TA to teacher and that learning path is a very, very effective one. Mm-hmm. If you and what we've seen subsequently, like in subsequent years, I really recognized that the best teachers were the newest learners. And then we would put the experts in the TA role mm-hmm. because it's much harder to go like untangled what some weird thing somebody's typed. Mm-hmm. Than Fascinating. It, than it is to like give the performance. But then what happens is that after you when you give them the instruction, Somebody will ask a question. You don't know the answer. And it creates a collaborative environment when then the TA answers and then you learn and you're actually learning how we do software, right? Mm -hmm. How do you talk about concepts? How do you problem solve together? And what I realized more recently is we started to expose this very different culture in software development to people who were new to it. Mm. So there were some counterintuitive lessons that you learned uh, along the the road to building this uh, organization. So 
at a certain point, you know, RailsBridge is getting popular and you start thinking about scaling it. It starts to move to other cities naturally. What happens? So, yeah, the first year um, uh, we sort of randomly went to other cities like um, Sarah May was invited to go to Hawaii and give a talk. I was I from the East Coast. I went to Cambridge and we just did we kind of did workshops wherever we went and um, saw that it was really replicable. And then um, it, but our plan had been to do this for one year. But the um, and that our goal was to get to 20 percent um, uh, to go from three to 18 percent in um, in one year. And what we were tracking was the number of women who showed up to the meetups. And we actually met that goal six months later. Nice. Very nice. And so, so then we really had a brainstorm where it was actually Oren Tyke at Heroku who said, if money wasn't an uh, issue, like suppose you just, not that we can give you like an infinite amount of money, but like what would it take to just blow the top off this thing? And what we realized was um, we are op- often getting um, sponsorships from companies who are trying to hire Rails engineers. And so it wasn't like trivial to get sponsorships, but it wasn't, that wasn't the hard thing. The hard thing was actually getting um, people to step up and play the organizer role and, Mm. um, and connecting the money to the people, right? So that Mm. um, we then sort of developed a mantra is that we would um, let nothing get in the way of having a workshop. Hmm, that's a great mantra. You know, this, and this touches on one of the things that has kind of cropped up as a theme in a couple places along the shows that we've done on Software Engineering Daily. This idea that leadership is extremely scarce, and uh, I guess you know maybe this comes back to the whole assembly line, uh, industrial age baked baked into us type of thing. But nobody teaches leadership. Nobody stresses it, and. Uh, there, there's. I think there's almost in in the programming community. I think there's almost a notion of shame around, you know, stepping up and being a leader. I don't know if there's this sort of like underdog thing associated with programming. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but uh, or like this allergy to management. Um, but so, how have you solved that problem? How have you gotten people to become? leaders of RailsBridge meetups or workshops? That's a, that's actually a great observation about leadership. I think there is this, this um, people have this assumed correlation that technical skill and leadership are not, um, are not correlated. In fact, inversely correlated. Right. Um, But in fact, my experience is that as people develop leadership skills, they become better technologists, right? Because they're defining problems. They're putting out solutions, right? Even if they're just doing it, with their code. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what we found is that people really, what I noticed, and this is anecdotally that women and men would come to the leadership roles differently. Um, Often you'd ask people why they were teaching and men would say, well, I want to improve my communication skills. I see this as a networking opportunity and women, it was really philanthropic. Right? So women would say, well, I, I got a lot out of this organization. I want to give back or I, I want to give other women the opportunity that I had, um, you know, which is, I think, really interesting. Right. So 
where we're in this environment, right, where, where open source is very, very few women, and people say, and rightfully so, women don't have spare time in our society, right? Women do the, most of the childcare. Women are responsible for their families, sometimes elder care. Women are responsible for most of the, you know, household cleaning stuff. I mean, not in my house because I suck at that. But other women do that kind of work, um, you know, and sometimes are obliged to. Um, and they often have to be more self-sufficient because they're not as entitled as their male peers. Um so why are we, you know, some people challenge us. Why are we demanding this, right, of our women leaders? But if you look at volunteer work, like the PTA is dominated by women, like, you know, nonprofits are typically dominated by women volunteers. But, you know, why do we consider open source not that? So I think that there's a, so back to your leadership question. Sorry, went off on a little rant there. <laughs> um I think that um, we really set it as um, an expectation. So at the end of every workshop, I typically say, hey, did everybody, did you like this? Did you get a lot out of it? And I've never been at a workshop where everybody wasn't, yes, it was amazing. It changed my world. And, um, and then I say, well, if you want this to continue, we're an all-volunteer organization. We need volunteers. And that... Um, one of the things that we did that was very effective, I'm not sure that everybody would have done this, but Sarah and I were both, I was like running my own company. I was also, it was a small consulting company. So I was still coding at that time. Sarah was a full-time coder. We were both moms, you know, they, we had little kids at home. Like this was not an easy lift for us. So we made a commitment to each other to do this for a year in, um, January, which was halfway through, a little over halfway through the year, Sarah May and Elin and I, Elin was our um, volunteer coordinator for the first year, got together and we made these workshop recipes where we wrote down all the things that we do so that other people could do it. And then at every workshop, I said, we need new organizers. Because the first year, mm -hmm. Sarah May and I organized every single workshop and nobody stepped up. And then finally, mm -hmm. um, in April, I asked two women to co-organize a workshop. And so the May workshop, May or June, was organized um, by Melanie Archer and uh, I can't remember, um, but these two women who are awesome leaders. And then um, at the end of the workshop, every there was nothing on the calendar and people said, when's the next workshop? And I said, I don't know. There will be another workshop when someone organizes one. Hmm. And Interesting. I think that like sometimes you have to leave space for leaders. Right. Huh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's so so tricky to teach this. And and it's uh, yeah, I think I think it's impossible to get to the point to where we have like too many leaders. Like I think everybody could be a leader and that would be the ideal scenario. So I don't know if you're listening to this and uh, you know, you've spent a lot of your day like um, complaining about the problems in your organization. Probably you can improve some of those by becoming a leader, but that's uh, more uh, broad advice. So let's let's talk about the the extrapolation of RailsBridge to Bridge Foundry. You learned these counterintuitive lessons about building an organization, about uh, the workshop model 
um, about the fact that you can't just inject money into this organization and have it grow like a weed. So you took these lessons and you replicated it uh, in the form of Bridge Foundry. What is Bridge Foundry? So Bridge. So first, Rails Bridge grew all over the world, right? So we spent a few years just geographic expansion, and we had this. Can we get some some stats? Um, when I last checked about a year ago, we were in 52 cities globally, um, where some of them, you know, like San Francisco will often have two workshops a month. Sometimes it's one a quarter. Sometimes it's, you know, um, different, different meters in different places. Um, but they're, they're typically teams of people who are, um, taking turns doing this workshop organizing and teaching. And we've replicated this. Students become TAs, become teachers. Um, and then the organizer, it's always a challenge to find organizers. And, um, and over time, we've like sort of, we keep working on how to create those leadership roles in ways that are supportive and helpful to people. So a few, you know, in a few years, RailsBridge grew all over the world and uh, the workshops did. But RailsBridge, the organization, had these other projects. So it was originally not just the workshops. We had a teaching kids initiative. We had um, we did like a Ruby a kids track at RubyConf in I think 2011. We did um, there's a Rails Mentors. It's like this online site for people to like help each other. And um, there were like a dozen different little projects. But it was the workshops that really took off, and people started using RailsBridge like as a noun. Like we're going to have a Rails bridge this weekend. So we recognized that Rails bridge had become synonymous with the workshops. Well, at the same time, there were all of our, all of our stuff, all of our materials, our processes is explicitly open source. Anyone can take our materials. You can do anything with them. If you call it Rails bridge, it must be free and it must be an outreach activity. But if you want to just use our materials to learn and teach in your office, go team. You know, we want this, you know, we want people to learn stuff. And um, so what happened is there were other organizations that were just like, okay, you know, there were like three different Python organizations, the Boston Python workshops and Pi Ladies and um, Pi Star that like borrowed the model and made things happen. And there was a Scala workshop but what we noticed is that we welcomed people of other technologies to work with us, but people didn't. They made it their own separate organizations, which is formally what we said we was fine. But we thought there'd be more power if we all banded together and, and shared a little more closely. So we had this hypothesis that the name was getting in the way. Mm. So what we did was we created, we took the organization, what we say is we refactored the organization so Bridge Foundry became the name of everything that wasn't the Rails workshops. And then Rails Bridge was just the Rails workshops. Great. So some of the things that have grown out of this uh, this refactoring are Mobile Bridge, Clojure Bridge, Go Bridge. And so these are respectively, you know, mobile development, uh, development with the language Go, and development with the language Clojure. So Go and Clojure, for example, I, I often think of these as more advanced languages. Maybe that's uh, – m- maybe I'm off base on that. But, like, 
are are the goals with with meetups like Clojure Bridge and Go Bridge are they similar to those of Rails Bridge or are you catering to more advanced programmers? Well, there are people who say that functional programming is a lot simpler than object oriented programming. Right? There was a time that people thought object oriented programming was advanced, right? Like right, it's intuitive. We're interacting with these digital objects, just like real world objects. Right, but you know, when I like before that, there was procedural programming, which is do this, do this, do this, do this, and that object oriented programming was like fancier at one point. So I think that whatever you learn first is the easy thing, um, and that um, certainly for I, I think. For certain types of people, functional and certain types of problems, functional programming is certainly easier. Um, and so it's really about having different entry points. And it's really about, um, I think, leveraging people's like motivation and excitement. Right. Okay. So, yeah, we, we had uh, we had Brian Kernahan on the show, actually, and he was talking about how he uh, doesn't understand. I think this is Brian Kernahan. I'm going to get in trouble if I get this wrong. But uh, he was talking about how he does. He didn't. He, he's never really kind of understood the JavaScript uh, inheritance model because uh, he's, you know, kind of comes from a C++ or Java background. Uh, and then I've talked to people who grew up in a JavaScript world and they have the converse problem, you know, they don't understand uh, the Java inheritance model as well as the JavaScript model. Um, so, okay, so it comes, so, so you know, we, we are rooted, we're anchored in the types of technologies that we start with. So I assume you're saying that because ClojureBridge and GoBridge are introductory meetups to new people, new programmers. Well, all of these things are, for both experienced programmers and new programmers. We, um, I think we're most well known for the new programmer stuff because um, I think those are the people who stay in the community the longest. We have, um, in my experience, we'll always have like at least 20%, probably sometimes half, are people who have programming experience or some programming experience they come and they, they spend less time in the workshops because they need it less, right? Like I know a woman who came, she went to one workshop, she was a Java programmer. She went to one workshop. She got a job the next week as a Rails engineer. Like, I don't even know if she needed the workshop. I think it was just more of a networking thing. She heard about this job because she went to the workshop. Um, and then, and I think also we see people, like not just women, like men have this problem too. They, you know, they're Java programmer for 10 years and they want to learn, get into Ruby or, you know, JavaScript or something and they have no credibility and people are like, oh, you've been doing this for 10 years. You can't do anything else. But if you go into your interview and you're like, yeah, I learned Rails last weekend, right? It completely changes the conversation. Mm, um, absolutely. So that opportunity to, you know, give people that chance to level up. And, you know, one of the um, leaders of GoBridge is um, a Rails engineer who's excited about learning this new language. So she's just she's teaching herself Go because she wants to do something new. Tell me some success stories of Bridge Foundry and Rails Bridge. So we've had um, a number of um, people who started programming um, because of Rails Bridge workshops. Um, and probably most notably Rachel Meyer, who went to the second workshop um, and was not a programmer um, and maybe not even sure that she wanted to do it who um, she went to workshop after workshop. She taught herself programming. She did a lot 
tremendous amount outside of RailsBridge Workshop. So that was a big motivator. She became a teacher. She became an organizer and um, really a leader in our community. And then in less than a year, she was a working software developer. And we have a number of stories like that of people who are new to programming. We also mm-hmm. um, have stories of like, you know, women who become, uh, become, they hear about new opportunities, right? So they come in as an experienced developer. They might be coming in to, um, to help teach or they might be coming in to learn a different technology, like they're learning mobile instead of um, Rails or vice versa. And then um, they get exposed to new opportunities uh, because of, of the network effect. Um, mm. and, um, and I think the, the other thing that we're doing, um, which when Sarah May, who co-founded Railsbridge with me and I were like sort of, you know, six months in brainstorming, well, what are we doing anyhow? Like, is this a jobs program or is this, you know, is something different? Like we really found that we valued, um, the people who weren't becoming programmers as part of this, like we saw women who would be like, they'd be a CMO, right? They're chief marketing officer of their company. And they would come in and they would just like, I just want to understand what my engineers are doing. Um, and so they're just becoming more technically conversant. They're gaining credibility with their team. Um, they, they're becoming more facile with the technology or it's just fun. Mm. Right. And I remember hearing this story from somebody who had brought um, her friend who was a designer. So this woman had never installed software on her machine before she would get the it guys to install Photoshop when there was a new version. Right. And Hmm. in the Railsbridge workshops, we require you to the Friday night, we have like beer and pizza and install what we call an install fest. Cause like, that's the hard, awful part where you have to be like, let me install Xcode and like these different, you know, brew install this and like, you know, all this command line stuff. What is this? I've never even used this command line thing before. Right. And you have to know like Unix commands. You don't even know what Unix is. Like you, this is like a whole interface to your machine you've never seen. And then it goes wrong sometimes, right? Like, oh, you have this version of that and, you know, let's go untangle that. And so here was somebody who had just like never even double clicked installed anything. And then she ends this weekend and she's like, ah, that wasn't that hard. Um, so she's just gained a whole set of just tech skills. So the, what Sarah called that general tech skills, she, she called it raising the ambient level of technology amongst women. Wow. Okay. So I love that because I, I have been trying to get my mom and my sister to engage with coding and technology at some more granular level. And I'm certainly going to point them to this episode to listen to. Um, I've been trying to do this for like three or four years. And, um, and I, I just have not made any progress. And it's really frustrating to me because I know that it's almost, it's, it's just like, it's like, it's like looking at a hammer from a distance being like, I don't know what that thing is for. Uh, but once you pick it up and like you use it one or two times, you instantly know, oh, this is how all these things in the world work. This this explains nails to me. Um, yeah, so- and I think it's hard because the beginning stuff for coding is the boring shit, right? Like yeah. when I first did, like I, the first time I installed Rails, like it took me three days. And I mean, it was a long time ago. It wasn't as easy as it is now, but 
it was like they, I had to, you know, figure out some incompatibility with something or other. And, you know, and then it gets fun because you're like, oh, now I can Rails new and I can like IRB and whatever. Um, but that that installation part is really like, I don't know, maybe some people like that. I know. Um, and I think that it's not just like there's a lot of people in the world, right, who who don't like they, that becomes a barrier. Right. That, and they think that that's what coding is. Mm-hmm. because that's what they're first exposed to. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to break that down. And that's why I think we should teach t- one of the reasons I think we should teach kids to code, because I think that it, this, all this stuff needs to be demystified and they need to have mm-hmm. that, that fun experience. So they know the difference. Perfect segue. So should every kid learn to code? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and what are the hurdles? I mean, I'm sure you've looked at this landscape and you understand this landscape much better than I do. What are the hurdles to getting every kid introduced to code to the degree that we need to? Well, I think there's a bunch of hurdles. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that we have a new generation of computers where you have to install a whole bunch of stuff before you start coding. It's very inaccessible now, which mm. I think is really unfortunate. When I started coding, you just, I mean, I'm glad we have a graphical user interface, but it was fun. Like, you you know, you got you open the computer, there was a command line, you could be like, print, Sarah is amazing, go to 10, you know, and then you have a whole screen full of Sarah's amazing. Um, You're referring to, that, to Windows machines, I guess? And I, my first machine was an Apple II. Okay. So you would type basic right into the terminal. And so it's gotten a little better. I mean, I was horrified when the iPhone and the iPad came out when you, they actually Uh, forbid you from making development environments on the iPad when it came out, which I found like just the worst possible thing that could be done for a generation, mm, right? This has been corrected, but I think we've lost some of that initial enthusiasm mm, to develop the kinds of things that would, empower kids like kids Mm. should get a machine that should be accessible for them to make stuff on it so what you're saying is uh many the first computer many kids get is an iphone or a um ipad and these computers people don't even think of them as computers really think of them as communication devices or phones uh couldn't be further from the truth and these do not make it easy to program, whereas a desktop computer uh, is is uh, and now a desktop computer is the de facto way to code. There is nothing inherently uh, prohibitive about coding on a mobile device other than the fact that Apple has kind of sandboxed that functionality away. Yeah, and I think the same thing, like, I, I don't know, a tablet that has, like, a really good interface. Like, it's not considered to be a significant market, and there isn't motivation, I guess, to do it, or maybe we just don't, I don't know why. It just mm. isn't. Um, but then the, the even the desktop environments are not as accessible as they were in, like, the 80s um, for coding, right? And because they just don't come with, right? The Apple II came with a basic manual. And I don't know whether that's the solution, but it's currently, it's very, it is a very difficult entry point for kids. And then the other thing is at school, um, at least in San Francisco, and I think that this is common in our, um, in the United States, that um, it's dominated by Windows machines that are completely locked down. 
And, um, and if kids are introduced to coding, they're introduced to these fake things. Like kids really like to learn real things. Like they can detect that they're Mm. learning some fake kids thing. And that's fine. If it's like, they don't mind a fake kids thing. That's like halo. (laughs) So, okay. So like this angry birds coding interface, like the code.org stuff, is that not up your alley? Well, I think that that's positive direction. Mm-hmm. Um, a little too I reductive. Think, well, I think that um, I, I, my ideal environment for kids would they would they would be building things that are real applications in some way. Yeah. Right. Like I, when I learned Basic, I was writing the same code mm. that people were writing when they wrote applications that you bought. Mm. They sense and the so- veneer. Absolutely. The little kids sense the veneer. Yeah. I mean, I wish I would have been doing programming instead of playing Incredible Machine, which is kind of like this uh, game that is where you solve problems. I mean, whatever. I have no right to complain. I learned plenty from that, and it was really enjoyable. But games are not the same thing. Like, I think problem-solving games are good, but they're not the same thing as coding. Mm, Um, And I think kids should be taught utility stuff. Like, suppose... I mean, you know, a little older than, you know, like whatever preschool or whatever, but um, like they, they need to be able to reason with data. Like we have so much information now, like what if they could, you know, like, you know, what if they were doing a biology experiment and they collected a bunch of data and then they like put it in a spreadsheet and then they will be able to do a, a statistical analysis on it. Like people think that that's super advanced, except it's not like I was teaching science to, um, uh, a bunch of first graders. And I talked to a friend of mine um, about who's a scientist. And I said, well, is hypothesis too big a word for these first graders? And she said, they all know what a Tyrannosaurus is. Hmm. You know, we, I think we, we don't give our kids, especially elementary school kids enough credit for how smart they are. Yes. Yes. We do the, we infantilize, it sounds like, yeah, we infantilize the young and we accuse the old of being uh, locked into their neuroplasticity. Uh, the world is only for 20 and 30-somethings. Um, false uh, false conclusions. So, okay, so I want to begin to close off and, and wrap, this, wrap this conversation up. Um, so, you know, like... This idea of uh, that everyone should learn to code or be exposed to code, I think there is some pushback to this, and uh, I think it's crazy. Um, I think it's like these, you know, the, this like three percent of scientists who uh, don't think that climate change is a thing, and uh, they're so loud about it that they actually have some sort of sway. Um, I think at this point, it's like not even a debate. Uh, every kid should be exposed to code or learn how to code. Uh, I think that should be the changing narrative. Um, but, uh, you know, okay, well, to, to, to close off, I mean, just, just to exemplify why it is important for everybody to be exposed to code or to learn to code or to learn to interact with coders at a bare minimum. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, you wrote about cultural change facilitated by software. This post is is not directly about Bridge Foundry, I don't think, but the, the subject is relevant. How is software changing our culture, and how can it change our culture going into the future to give a brighter, more diverse future? 
We are so much more empowered as individuals now in this generation than ever before, at least potentially, right? With all due respect to the digital divide and that not everyone actually has access, um, I think that that problem could be solved. Um, You know, there's a bunch of people working on that. But even with the people who have access, they don't actually, they're not actually being empowered by the technology that they have access to because of this missing piece of education. I think a lot about how um, in the early days of this country, um, we had uh, a very well-educated populace, which was um, unusual. It was more people who had more ability to read and write than in Europe. So I've read. And with those words, we created a country. We created a democracy. We created the expectation of how we would have individual rights. Now, in this day and age, we can exercise those individual rights in fundamentally different ways if we can access this technology that surrounds us, if we can actually control it and actually create. And I think that that is the opportunity. We have an opportunity for participatory democracy in ways that we've never really been able to before, because our ability to participate in our society transcends where we are physically. It transcends our um, physical capabilities, our it is completely independent of these superficial attributes of race and gender and age and all of these things. So that's why I think there's an urgency for everyone, no matter what age they are right now, for what, with whatever their station, whatever their role is in society, to be able to be actively creating our new society. And I think technology can facilitate that. Well, that's a great place to stop. Sarah Allen, thanks for an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, it's been really great having you. Um, and of course, if you have any news or interesting things to discuss in the future, feel free to come back on. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you.